everyone. Welcome to the Wrong Kind of Christian Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Martin, and I wanted to start off today by thanking so many of you who have been praying for my parents. Um, They were involved in a serious car accident last week, and I have been with them trying to help them get everything settled and taken care of. And due to that, I wasn't able to get this chapter discussion out last week when it was supposed to be out. And I apologize for that, but I know you all understand, and and I really appreciate your patience and your thoughts and your prayers. We've still got a long road ahead for them, but we know that God's got this. So so thankfully, Hebrews 8 is a summary and kind of like a fleshing out, if you will, of Hebrews 7. So if I had to miss a week, this was a great place to do that. If you haven't yet listened to the Hebrews 7 episode called Christianity Can Be Intellectually Challenging, I really encourage you to go back and listen to that first so that you have a good understanding of what the author is talking about here. The author literally starts with, the point is to start chapter eight. So this is also probably a really great spot to give a little reminder that this entire book of Hebrews is one interaction. So we've gone back and broken it into chapter and verse for our own understanding and discussion purposes, but the original author didn't start a new chapter here. It's just a continuation of chapter seven, which was a continuation of chapter six, you know, one long interaction. I typically read from the NIV, which is the New International Version, but today I'm going to be reading from the ESV, which is the English Standard Version. They're not different in meaning per se, but the wording is a little bit easier, I think, to understand what we're reading this week. So let's just dive right in. Verses one and two say this. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So it's really like this. We have a high priest who is so awesome, who has so much authority that he is serving not here in the earthly tabernacle, but from the right hand of God in heaven. Do you find it interesting that the writer made sure to tell us that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God? It may not mean so much to us today, but to the Hebrew Christians, they would have seen the deeper meaning behind including this little fact. In the tabernacle and the old temple, there were a great many things, very fine things, you know, but one thing was definitely missing, and that was that there was no place for a high priest to sit. Why would that be? A person generally sits when their work is done and the high priest's work was never done. So there was no reason for them to sit in the temple. Take that info with what we just read here in chapter eight. And you can see why the Hebrew Christians would have taken note of the fact that Jesus was seated next to God. To them, that would have implied that his work is finished. He has offered the ultimate sacrifice and there won't be another one to come. And he has done it all at the true temple of the Lord, the one in heaven, not the temple on earth in Jerusalem. And we'll talk more about that in just a minute. But first, let's go on to verse three. 
Verse three says, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Again, the writer isn't telling them anything new here. If Jesus is to be our great high priest, there must be a sacrifice. Now, Jesus didn't offer a sacrifice according to the Mosaic law requirements, but he offered a much better sacrifice in himself. And he didn't offer it in the holiest of holies inside the copy of the temple. He offered it in the presence of the holiest of all holies in the original temple, the one in heaven. Verses four and five tell us that the temple here on earth was just a replica of the actual temple in heaven. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Just like we talked about two weeks ago, Jesus wasn't qualified to be a priest in the earthly priesthood, not here on earth. There are plenty of priests in Aaron's line who could have taken on that job. But Jesus was the only one qualified to be a priest in the real temple. Just take a minute and think about this. Can you imagine what that temple must look like? We know that like here on earth, you know, various kings have poured their money and their resources into making the temple here in Jerusalem, this great grand site, but it was only a replica, like a model, you know, can you imagine what the original temple in heaven must be like? I can't wait to see it someday. This verse actually goes a bit further and says that even the priests are shadows, copies of the real deal. Only Jesus can serve in that place. So Jesus is our great high priest because he is the only one who can serve in that heavenly temple. Even the priests that were here on earth, all of Aaron's line, were just copies of what Jesus is as our high priest. Verse six kind of sums it up nicely. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Simply put, Jesus's priesthood is superior with a better covenant and better promises. That's it. And thank goodness that's true, right? Because of Jesus's mediation, we are now saved by grace. And let's talk about that word mediator. I don't know what comes to your mind, but when I think of that word mediator, I think of someone who is sitting there listening to, you know, two sides Two people who can't agree on something, trying to get them to compromise. Is that what you've imagined too? It turns out that I actually have a skewed idea of what this word means, at least in this context. So the Greek word used here is mesites, which has more of like a bringing together connotation rather than like what I would typically think of as a mediation connotation. It can literally be translated, one who stands in the middle between two people and brings them together. So Jesus is literally bringing us to God, like a mutual friend who's introducing two people to each other. Or maybe the correct image would actually be like a fiance who is introducing his bride to be to his parents. You know, the church, us, we are the bride of Christ. And he, he must love us so much to bring us to meet his father and the Godhead knew that while the previous covenant was good, it taught us how to live. 
it wouldn't be enough because we would fail. We would fail to meet the requirements set forth in the law. And God knew that. It doesn't surprise God when we mess up, right? This next section is is a big section. So just kind of hang tight with me and we'll talk about it at the end. But it's actually a, a quote from another book. So we'll talk about that. Verses 7 through 13. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. The author of Hebrews always does an excellent job of bringing in proof from the Old Testament that would resonate with the Hebrew Christians. And here he's quoting Jeremiah 31, and he's just reminding them again that they'd already been told that a new covenant was coming. We've seen this a few times already in the book of Hebrews. He's telling them, you knew it was coming, so so don't reject it now that it's here. A few chapters ago, I spoke about having empathy towards the Hebrew Christians for being leery of this new way of living. Sometimes we humans, we can be terrified of change, right? My husband calls it moving his cheese. He doesn't like it if his cheese is moved too much. As humans, we tend to push against anything that brings about more change than we think we're ready to contend with. And here, these Hebrew Christians weren't just dealing with some minor moving of their cheese. This was a whole overhaul of their refrigerator. So this is letting go of all of their customs and all of their traditions, not necessarily letting go of the teachings, but learning to apply them in a whole new way and really understanding their meanings. I recently read a scholar who said the new covenant is not like the commercials we see on TV today. The commercials we see today are constantly advertising things as new and improved, which, you know, side note, kind of an oxymoron, isn't it? How can something be both new and improved? But this new covenant is new. It's not an improvement on the old covenant. It's the fulfillment of the old, leading us into a whole new concept. The closest analogy I can come up with is a marriage. Man meets woman. They come to love each other and get engaged. Engagement is just a promise to be married. So the end of that engagement is marriage. The marriage isn't a continuation of the engagement, but instead is the fulfillment of the engagement commitment, leading us into a whole new relationship between the now husband and wife. Does that make sense? The writer finishes up with verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. So we're talking about God here. In speaking of a new covenant, he, God, makes the old makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So the writer's letting them know once again that there's no point in turning back. They would be turning back to a system that is no longer in effect, no longer has any power. In fact, God would soon make it impossible 
for the old sacrificial system to continue. And I don't think that's accidental. Remember, the new covenant came into effect around 33 AD. In 70 AD, so less than 40 years later, 70 AD, the Romans came and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. The Western Wall was the only remaining piece. God literally allowed for the temple to be taken away. Couple that with the ripping of the cloth that separated the holiest of holies during Jesus's crucifixion. God was pushing the people towards acceptance of the new covenant. He took away the old so that they literally couldn't go back. Next week, we'll move on to chapter nine, doing a little deeper comparison of the old and new covenants, but also really looking at why Jesus had to die. Why couldn't there have been another way? Make sure to subscribe or follow Wrong Kind of Christian Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts so that you don't miss that discussion because it's going to be a good one. Also, this Thursday, don't miss an interview with Christian rapper and entrepreneur Cash Memphis. He's got a new thing of his own going on right now, and he's going to tell us all about that Thursday morning. So make sure you look for that one. I'll talk to you then. Bye.